Hey guys, it's David. The college access study featured in this episode of Abstract was made possible through funding from Virginia 529, helping students and their families in the Commonwealth save money for college for over 20 years. Check out the important work they do and learn how you can open your own college savings account at virginia529.com. Um, when you talk, just try to lean into the microphone just a little bit. <laughs> Take off all the jewelry. Yeah, because it just makes noise. <laughs> this is basically TSA. Um, <laughs> lock through the metal detector. Um, Here we go. Hey, folks. Uh, welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues in education. We're coming to you from the cool new recording studio at Cabell Library at VCU with fancy microphones. We've come a long way because our first episode, we were sitting around a conference table with a single blue snowball mic that we passed around to everybody, and it sounded just terrible. So we're professional. We're moving up in the world. As always, my name is David Knapp, and I'm the host of this show. As a former high school counselor, today's topic is near and dear to my heart um, because we're talking about college access. More specifically, we're talking about a recent report put out by Merck and commissioned by the State Council of Higher Education in Virginia about college access providers in Region 1 for the Commonwealth. Uh, we have an awesome panel assembled here today, bringing in different perspectives about the importance of providing college access for all students. Without further ado, let me introduce these great people to you now. For each person I introduce, I'm going to ask them to share where they went to college, this is the college access study after all, and what their favorite school tradition was at the college where they went. So we're going to start with Ms. Kate Daly, who is a workforce education specialist um, and a PhD student here at VCU. Kate, where'd you go to college and what's your favorite school tradition? I went to college at uh, the University of Arizona in Mm -hmm. Tucson. And um, I don't know that this was my favorite, but it's the one that that stands out at at any kind of um, big event or sporting event. There was, instead of confetti, there would just be tortillas everywhere. So they threw tortillas, which is always appropriate for the location. That sounds super made up. It's super true. That happened? All right. Yeah. You would not want to eat them. You come from a far away away. Um, okay, and then we have Paula Robinson, who's the Assistant Director of College Access and PK-12 Outreach for the State Council of Higher Education in Virginia, or SHEV. Paula, where'd you go to college, and what was your favorite school tradition? I went to James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I didn't get too much into traditions, and I would like to borrow the tortillas. Um, <laughs> but I was just really hanging out in the, in the student union, because that's just what we did. How was the student union at JMU? Uh, at that time, which I think it's very different now. <laughs> it was just a cool spot in the, kind of the center of campus, and everyone just kind of hung out there in between classes, and yeah, it's just a place to be. All right. At least pretty good. Uh, we have <laughs> Betsy Heggie here, who is the Chief Executive Officer of GRASP, and I'm going to let her tell you what that um, acronym stands for. She's our first ever CEO on the show, Ooh. so this is an exciting day for us. <laughs> Betsy, where'd you go to college and hey, favorite tradition? I went to Salem College in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and then uh, that was all women, and then on to Wake Forest to get an MBA, and I was one of five women in the entire MBA program uh-huh. back in the olden days. And my favorite college tradition, oddly, was walking through the Moravian Graveyard at old, in Old Salem, <laughs> which is a beautiful mm-hmm. park-like setting. 
so I'm just a little strange. It is beautiful in Old Salem. I lived in Winston-Salem for six years. Okay. I actually went to Wake Forest, too, for my master's. Um, Are you familiar with the tradition at Wake Forest of toilet papering the quad after any sports victory? I'm very familiar with that tradition, yes. Um, You know, as a woman in an all-girls school... We spent a significant amount of time over at Wake Forest University. So, uh-huh. uh, yeah, papering the quad was great. Yeah, yeah, except for the <laughs> landscaping people who had to clean it up yeah, later. Yeah, but still. <laughs> um, we have Amy Corning here as assistant professor for the School of Education and the principal investigator on this study. Amy, where would you go to college and favorite school tradition? Well, I went to a college which at the time was Harvard Radcliffe College, but now is just Harvard College. So ah. they lost the Radcliffe. <laughs> I don't know if anybody here has heard of Harvard College before. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a small kind of boarding school in Massachusetts. Um, and, um, but I actually do have a kind of well, – I hope it counts as a tradition. The, um, the dorm, the house that I lived in uh, after my freshman year, had a set of bells that came from a church in Russia. And mm. so they were hanging there in the tower, and students could play them once a week. So Aww. you can imagine how that's <laughs> surely good. Um, well, and again, my name is David Knapp. I'm the newly minted assistant director of research and evaluation for Merck, which I'm excited to stick around. That means the podcast is sticking around too. So that's really good news. Um, I went to Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, um, for my undergrad, and then Wake Forest for my master's program. Uh, in Boone at Appalachian State, football's pretty much the only thing to do in Boone besides hiking and things like that. So all the traditions around that. We had a big rivalry with Western Carolina University, which is in Cullowhee, North Carolina. And for the football game every year, whoever won it won the Old Mountain Jug, which was a big moonshine jug. Because Yosef was yeah. our mascot, yeah, which was <laughs> just meant yourself, apparently. That's how it originated, but we won pretty much every year, so we hold on to that that moonshine jug. Um, Okay, great. So now we know everybody here. Um, We're going to get started with this conversation. So I'm going to get Kate to kick us off here. I've got a three-part question, a three-part question, because I know Kate can handle it. So we're working with some assumptions here. Um, What are the benefits of post-secondary education? Who has difficulty accessing college, and what can be done to help? Kick Um, us off. All right, I'll kick us off. I'll start it, and if I leave things out, you guys chime in as we go through. Um, So there are so many benefits to post-secondary education. Um, I think the most directly visible ones are higher income and lower rates of unemployment across the board. Um, And that's even for the smallest amount of post-secondary education. And when we're we're talking about post-secondary education, too, we're talking about both two-year, four-year like training that happens after, after high school, so not just the traditional four-year bachelors. Um, so in addition to income and un- um, lower in- unemployment rates, there's um, also a generally less reliance on public assistance programs. Um, there's higher levels of health benefits from employers, so then there's higher levels of health, both individually and in, and in communities. Um, there's also... Um, more civic engagement, more involvement in children's education, and um, higher levels of intergenerational cycles of educational attainment. So there's there's a ton of benefits, and there's also benefits that that point to lower crime rates and just healthier communities in general. Um, any any other? I mean, there's a ton, but it, 
There's probably more. Somehow you hit them all. You hit them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would just I would just add one more, which is um, less easily measured, and that's the benefit of just broadening horizons. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think that in society today we are so compartmentalized mm-hmm. by race, by class, you know, I mean, all kinds of, of things. And college is one of the few places where people really do have opportunities to come into contact with, in close contact with people who are very unlike them mm-hmm. and yeah. to be exposed mm-hmm. to new ways of thinking, new ways of looking at the world and understanding the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that is very important and serves people very well throughout the rest of their lives. I always think as well that when you have um, attained whatever form of post-secondary education you wish to attain, it's something that no one can ever take from you, regardless of what happens to you, if you lose a job, if something else happens that's not good in your life, or you don't feel successful, you can go back to that moment that you are a success. Look what you know. Look what you've learned. And I I think it's really important for self-esteem. It's a lot more. So more than a few benefits for Mm -hmm. post-secondary education. Kate, tell us who can often have difficulty accessing college. Um, Very often those from lower socioeconomic groups tend to have a lot more difficulty accessing college. Um, First-generation students Mm -hmm. have a hard time accessing college. And um, there are certain... um, minority groups and uh, English language learners in general also to not accessing college at rates anywhere close to um, majority uh, white populations. So um, there are a lot of barriers there, you know, uh, to do with um, the financial perceptions of, of what college costs and what kinds of assistance are available. Um, there's parental and family support, so especially for those first-generation students, that support, those expectations might not be there. The college-going culture isn't there. So that's it's really hard to come from a place that isn't a college-going culture and then know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because just the it's not just the application process and financial aid. It's also academic preparation and um, you know test preparation, the SAT, ACT. All of, there's just a huge process and. And knowing where to go, whom to talk to, what colleges to go to, mm-hmm. all of those things are, um, they're not readily apparent. That information isn't e- easily accessible to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's that college awareness that you build up. You, and, yeah. I mean, you had mentioned that the uh, intergenerational benefits of it. So once you've gone to college, then your children now get to benefit from you know what it's like to go through the enrollment processes for going to college and things like that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a couple of things that we might need to define a little bit more. When you say socioeconomic status, we're not necessarily just talking about income, right? So what else is involved with somebody's socioeconomic status? Their educational levels, um, the community's educational levels, um, the levels of uh, the income levels of those around them and the educational levels of those around them, community as well as an individual factor. Yeah, occupation can play in there sometimes Huge, yeah. too, which mm-hmm. of course is correlated with education as we know. And then you talked about a first-generation college student, which I'm sure that's not the first time that's going to come up today. So yeah. give us, what's our definition of a first-generation college student when we're talking about them? As someone whose parents, grandparents, they would be the first person in their families to go to college so they don't have that model yet or those mm-hmm. expectations, really. Yeah. And there's very definitions for it. So sometimes people will say um, going to college. Sometimes people will say graduating from college. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about college for first generation, it's generally 
four-year college. Right. Um, and so there's a difference there between just going to college, like maybe my parent went to college and then dropped out so they at least know what the application process is like, or maybe it's that they haven't been on campus at all. Um, the federal definition right. is usually graduated from four-year college. Um, and by the way, we have one-third of our students here at VCU are first-generation college students. Yeah. I do want to say it's important to emphasize, too, that students at other kinds of non-traditional or non-traditional four-year college experiences, like the, the community college system or vocational training that's post-secondary, those, if, if they go to any of those, I mean, there are many that are still considered and consider themselves first-generation. So mm-hmm. they feel, um, and I work with this population quite often, they feel definitely like they're pioneering and they need a lot of support in getting through that process. And not, not just the application process, but once they're there, that continued support. So um, I think an expanded definition of what that post-secondary experience is is important to, to recognize. Absolutely. Yeah, they're educational pioneers in their families. Mm-hmm. You hear that described a whole lot. Um, so what can be done to help? That's why we're here. Oh, a ton, and I don't want to. I don't want to spoil too much because a lot of it came out of the study recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think our big, our I think the big word is awareness, more awareness, mm-hmm. lower levels of um, at uh, lower grade levels, lower ages, and um, really reaching out to the families and communities, not mm-hmm. just the students themselves. Well, I don't want to say too much because I know we should hop right into it. It sounds like this is an exciting study to talk about. Amy, why don't you kick us off here? So let's start off by saying, what is our definition of a college access provider? Well, we had a fairly specific uh, definition that encompassed uh, really five, a total of five different types of college access providers, and um, essentially. A college access provider is really anyone who provides any kind of support to a student in gaining access to college. Uh, But in terms of the five different types that we distinguished, the first type was community-based providers. And those are groups or organizations that um, kind of are, are formed often within a particular locality to address a particular uh, group of students, a particular perceived need for college access support, um, that sort of thing. They're often uh, nonprofits. Sometimes they're supported by, um, you know, business businesses in the local community kind of contribute to their efforts. Um, I don't know Bessie's going to say say more about all of that. Um, but that's the first type. And then the second type is um, access providers that are state or higher education directed. And what that means is that they are um, either providing, it's either a university or a college that is providing the program for students, or it's, uh, in some cases, a federally funded program like Upward Bound or Talent Search. Those are two that people may be most familiar with, um, that uh, that are operated by offices located, housed within uh, universities. So that's two. And a third type is micro-providers. And those are a little harder to define, but I think that those would include um, groups or uh, even individuals at um, very local organizations that may, for example, provide after-school programs or resources for kids. So it could be things like um, the Boys and Girls Clubs um, Mm -hmm. or small organizations that have mentors that work with kids. And some of them um, 
run programs that are, you know, specifically designed to support students in gaining access to college. Uh, but, but many of them don't. And, and, you know, sometimes there are mentors whose role really is to support students, but often the mentors are um, just, you know, doing sort of general tutoring support, um, encouraging kids in school and, and supporting them in, in other aspects of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the three that our study was concerned with. Mm-hmm. There are two other types that I want to mention. And those are, uh, the first is school-based providers. That's, you know, any efforts that, that the school provides um, includes anything that teachers do, counselors, of course. And those are really the folks who are kind of in the front lines of college access. We didn't address any of their efforts in our study uh, because, you know, schools already know what those resources are. It's a known quantity. And then the last type of provider is called relationship-based providers. And those are really individuals who provide support to students. They can be anybody, you know, anybody who helps out a student by being um, a role model, can be a parent, can be a sibling, can be folks in the community, um, but it's those kind of individual relationships that are very important often in supporting students in gaining access to college. But we have really no, you know, very limited means of studying those kinds of um, access support uh, just because, you know, they're, they're so informal and individually based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so shout out to the school counselors and the parents out there who are doing this work all the time. It's just not what we're talking about today. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Absolutely. And you, you started to touch on some examples that are um, available in Region 1. Uh, any others that you want to mention now? Sure. Well, the, I mean, the thing that I think is really interesting about college access provider organizations is that they run the gamut. I mean, there are some uh, very large kind of networks of organizations. The Virginia um, Community College System has the high school career coaches. They are um, coaches who are you know, based in particular high schools um, and then have also a college affiliation. Um, so they provide a lot of support, and that's support that is you know, dispersed across the state. Um, then there are organizations like GRASP, of course, that have a similar arrangement with coaches, you know, housed in or affiliated with particular schools, um, again, statewide. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there are, you know, as I kind of indicated earlier, there are very local organizations, um, for example, in Richmond City, um, There's the Peter Paul Development Center Mm -hmm. that's actually in my neighborhood, so I'm very familiar (laughs) with them. And they provide, you know, a whole range of programming for underserved kids. But in addition to, you know, that broad range of programming, they also support college access. Mm -hmm. So that those are kind of, I would say, the two ends of the spectrum. And then there are a whole range of organizations in between. Oh, another that I should mention is uh, Project Discovery. Uh, which operates through site coordinators who are based at uh, at local community action agencies throughout the state of Virginia. Hmm. So there's both state and local providers. And one of the great things about this awesome report that um, Amy and Kate just put out uh, is that it gives this list of the different college access providers that are available 
to folks in Region 1 and throughout the state of Virginia. So that'll be available on our website that people can check out if they want to get a more comprehensive list of these um, these providers uh, that are in the state. Okay, so we actually have a real-life <laughs> college access provider in the room. <laughs> He's excited. We're excited to have her here. Um, Betsy, can you describe the work that you do at GRASP as a college access provider for students in Virginia? Yes, um, thank you. Uh, GRASP, by the way, stands for the Great Aspiration Scholarship Program, Inc. We're a 501c3, and um, but more commonly we're known as GRASP. That's a big name to say all the time. So um, what we do is we work in high schools one to two days a week for maybe six or seven hours a day, five to five to seven helping students and parents with college financial aid and scholarships. We work through the school counseling office, which is, you know, shout out to the counselors from me too. (laughs) Without the school counselors, we could not get our work done. So um, they are truly partners of ours. Um, And so what we're doing is helping students and parents figure out how to um, access post-secondary education. But when we bring it down to the level of the one-on-one work we do, which primarily we are working with students individually, um, we also do classroom presentations. But the first point with a student is to to help them believe that post-secondary education is an attainable goal. Mm -hmm. And um, that can be someone who is very high-achieving, Uh, who has financial barriers, or it can be someone who had low grades in high school and doesn't understand that they can reinvent themselves through the community college system. It can be someone who's more interested, um, thinking of a young lady we're working with right now who's more interested in automotive, who is attaining two uh, community college associate degrees, one in business and one in in, uh, auto mechanics. And uh, so it's a whole, there's a whole range of what people want to do with their lives or don't think they can do. And what our, our first job is to validate their dreams and wishes mm-hmm. and help them to um, work with us on this journey to how to, how to make them hap- how to make this happen. If they're not, they don't feel validated, they're not going to listen to anything we have to say. <laughs> so the next thing we do is we educate the students about how to find how to fund post-secondary education. Um, that's our, our particular niche. Uh, funding post-secondary education is something that requires continual education of our advis- advising staff. We call them GRASP advisors that are in the 76 high schools in Virginia in our case. So funding education can involve grants. It can involve something... Um, like uh, Quest Bridge, which is a wonderful program if, if anyone's listening and they haven't in, involved themselves in it, um, that will pay for a post-secondary education at a place like Harvard with mm. someone coming out with no debt. And we help with them. We help them, anyway, gather these resources. It could be scholarships. They could be grants. They could be could be just a matter of doing an application for something. And then what we do is we help them in our in our case, and I think all the access providers do this of every ilk that we that was discussed. We help them complete the free application for federal student aid. That's been simplified through the years, but there's still years like this year, where if suddenly the FAFSA was available in October, yeah. and suddenly a new improvement where you could import your data from your tax return broke. And so in the middle of the year, we have people who are not only first generation, they may already not want to give the government 
their financial mm -hmm. information. And then and we've just built the trust, and then the whole thing sort of breaks. So that's <laughs> the advantage of having this nice, educated person who can hold your hand and take you through the process, mm -hmm. let you know it's going to be okay, we're going to make this work out. Um, and then the last thing that I think all of us are focused on is the issue of debt. Um, students can be vulnerable to high-cost options that look attractive in commercials, perhaps, or um, brochures that they receive at home. And there may be a much less expensive option here um, in the community. And we're all fairly insane. So, I mean, I'll give you two quick examples uh, if we have time. One is... Um, I was get, having blood drawn the the other day, and the, well, while the woman was drawing blood, I was saying, well, how did you get this job? How did you get your training to do this? And she said she was a phlebotomist, and she went to a for-profit school and paid about $25,000, and she said, listen, nobody, nobody should do that. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sorry for profit schools, but you can actually get that education at community colleges. Mm -hmm. So my point is... Um, what we can do is say to you, if you say, I want to be a phlebotomist, we'll say, well, you, here are two options. We just want you to know this option has a $6,000 price tag and this option has a $25,000 mm -hmm. price tag. You make the decision. Yeah. And the, the other one is I was getting a CAT scan as a medical follow-up recently. <laughs> a lot of medical stories. Yes. <laughs> so I'm I had a lot of medical stuff this year. So I'm lying there on the table to get the CAT scan, and um, they're putting the IV in I hope no one faints out there. And so, <laughs> this I, so a little girl with a VCU, a young woman with a VCU tag, comes in in a in a blue outfit. And I said, "So where did you go to high school?" And she said, "Thomas Dale High School." Mm -hmm. And I said, "Did you ever? Did you have a grasp advisor there?" Mm -hmm. um, and she said, "Indeed, she did." And then she said, unprompted. Every high school should have a grasp advisor. Hey. Hey. So, right. you know, and then I went into the long tube. And <laughs> but anyway, that's two kind of fun stories. That's terrific. Um, I, your first point about college being attainable, I think, is so important because it's almost like you don't get to consider all the other elements that you were just describing until you realize that college is something that's attainable. So it's important for us to remember. Um, so, Paula, we need some background on this study. Why was this commissioned? How was the State Council for Higher, of Higher Education in Virginia involved? Give us some background. Sure. There actually is a backstory, and it goes back to 2008, actually. Mm -hmm. um, in 2008, the state received the College Access Challenge Grant, and, and Chev was administering that grant. And with the grant was, was an opportunity to foster partnerships among uh, access organizations to significantly increase the number of low-income students who are going on to college. Mm -hmm. And great idea, but we didn't even know where to begin at a state level, just didn't know where to begin with that topic. And so we need to do a study. And so in 2009, we began a study looking at the landscape of what college access looked like at that time. Mm -hmm. And so seeing what providers were out there, what types of service they were providing, and where were resources lacking or where were resources plentiful. Mm -hmm. And so we did an original study in 2009. It went well. Um, I really think it, it, it helped not only guide our funding for the Ch College Access Challenge Grant, but also helped other organizations direct some of their their funding and their services, mm -hmm. recognizing where the gaps were across the state, where seeing where they could redirect funds and or increase the, number, the amount of services being offered. Mm -hmm. So we found that to be very helpful and um, so helpful that in 2015, the General Assembly asked us, or actually 2014 General Assembly asked us to do um, to relook at that information to see if there had been change since 2009. Mm -hmm. And so we did do like a precursory exploratory review of the access field again. 
and um, found that there had been enough change that we needed to do a full-blown study, and that's what we have now. Mm-hmm. So we went back and looked at the entire state of Virginia, so all 131 divisions were assessed. Mm-hmm. Um, they ranked them again based upon um, low-income sta- uh, social economic status as well as um, post-secondary attainment levels and, re- and ranked them again as then identified and went out and did this full-blown survey of access providers across the state mm-hmm. to see if we had some new ones, if the old ones were still there, what services they were providing now, how they were operating, really looking at how they manage the program. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was, it was just, it was, it's been a great look to see what happened in 2008 where we really had no knowledge of this field. 2009, doing a study to kind of get a, a, a benchmark of what was, what was going on. And now in 2016, now 17 being published, but 2016, um, really assessing what the field looks like now. And there have been changes. Actually, I'm happy to say that there seems to be increases um, mm-hmm. in services as well as outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so statewide need. Statewide um, and what we're talking about today with this report that just came out from Merck is uh, for Region 1 for the state. So can you give us an idea about what we mean by Region 1 when we're talking about that? Region 1, and, and you guys might be better off <laughs> describing Region 1 because I just look at the eight superintendent regions which are done by video. Well, it's Region 2 and 3, so there had to be a 1. <laughs> right, there had to be a 1. Yeah. Had to exist, yeah. So that's, but I do want to describe which divisions two. include... You want me to say which division? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, okay. give us a list. Charles City, Chesterfield, Colonial Heights, Dinwiddie, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Hopewell, New Kent, Petersburg, Powhatan, Prince George, Richmond, Richmond City, Surrey, and Sussex. Mm-hmm. So this is the area that's surrounding Richmond. So sort of right. metropolitan Richmond is kind of what we're talking about. So folks who go to our website to check out this brief, that's what they're going to be able to see specifically right. about those divisions, but also some information about um, what it's like for the entire state of Virginia. Okay, so let's hop into some method here. Amy, we know why we have this study. Why don't you give us an idea about how we went about conducting it? Sure. Well, uh, the study really, as Paul had alluded Paul alluded to consisted of two separate components with methodologically distinct approaches. Uh, So our first goal was really to sort of assess the need of each of the 131 school divisions for college access resources. And so we didn't do our own data collection for that. We relied on VDOE data, but we did the analysis. And we used two indicators um, in order to um, provide, you know, kind of some sense of the need of different school divisions. And so the first was, um, as Paula mentioned, the post-secondary percentage of students uh, in the 2014 cohort that had enrolled in post-secondary education in each division. Mm -hmm. And that's an important indicator because it represents what, to my mind, is a major advance over the earlier study. Mm-hmm. I believe that that measure was not available mm-hmm. back in 2009 mm-hmm. when the study was done. And so they had to rely on graduation rates and dropout rates, which, you know, of course, are somewhat more distant from mm-hmm. the concept of post-secondary attainment uh, or enrollment. So I, I think that's a major advance of our new study is our ability to use the actual enrollment rates mm-hmm. of each division. So that provided a kind of um, general assessment, but we wanted to try to disaggregate divisions in terms of their probable need for access resources. And we did that by drawing on Uh, again, a VDOE measure of economic disadvantage. And so our logic was that 
because there's this very strong association over many years between um, income levels, other measures of economic disadvantage, and post-secondary attainment, um, our logic was that you know this would help us to better understand the need of each division within the enrollment levels. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we use this measure, and it is mainly based on the percentage of students eligible for free and reduced school lunch, mm-hmm. but also takes account of things like eligibility for um, TANF, uh, temporary assistance for needy families, mm-hmm. and homeless and migrant status, mm-hmm. and maybe something else. But it is mainly the free and reduced school lunch percentage. Um, so we have the percentage of students economic considered economically disadvantaged within each division. And we... Um, essentially crossed those two indicators, and we were then able to locate each school division within particular combinations of post-secondary enrollment and economic disadvantage Mm -hmm. to help us understand their need. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of, that was one direction for the the study. And then the other direction was the assessment of the access resources available within each division. Mm -hmm. And that's where the survey that Paula mentioned comes in. We, uh, our first task was really just to identify the college access providers that are out there. And we drew on, of course, the list of providers that had participated in the study in in 2009, Mm -hmm. but also did just a lot of kind of pavement pounding and internet (laughs) searching (laughs) to, um, to try to identify providers. And then once we had identified them, we talked to them to make sure that they really did provide college access, you know, specific college access programs, um, and invited them to participate in our survey. Mm -hmm. And they then completed an online survey, which was quite extensive and took about, um, half an hour, 40 minutes to complete, so we obtained a lot of information from them, mm-hmm. and we had, in the end, we had 115 providers participating, which was about a 75% response rate. So, in other words, 75% of the providers we contacted um, participated, which is terrific. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar, but you know, standard <laughs> survey response rates now are in the single digits. So, well done. Um, yeah. <laughs> For percentages. There's single digits? Mm-hmm. Single digits. Wow. Yes. Yeah. National, you know, like a national population survey. Yeah. yeah. So maybe there's some buy-in from these access providers to want to participate yeah. in something like this. Yeah. Well, yes. Mm-hmm. yes. I don't know if you were going to mention this, but also Virginia College Access Network, I think, is a really important resource. Mm. Yes. You want to talk? Well, you, you can go ahead. Well, I, happen be, I happen to be a board member of the Virginia College Access Network, but um, and I, I came to that group about 10 years ago. It's a it's an incredible resource of professionals whose ethic is sharing. It's not competitive. It's a sharing organization, mm-hmm. and that is so incredibly important. They have a wonderful educational conference every year. So anyone who's interested in this arena, I think attending that conference is not it's not a boondoggle. It's an it's a great learning experience. Mm-hmm. And you'll find the most sharing people there who are able, well, in fact, they'll help you build such a, uh, an organization in your community if you, mm. if you need that. 
So I just wanted to say that virginiacan.org is their website. It, it's a terrific resource. Mm-hmm. I agree completely with Betsy. And they were very helpful to us also in making available their lists of members, um, mm-hmm. which we also mm-hmm. drew on. Uh, and I'll just mention this now, but we can maybe come back to it later. Uh, one thing that we learned through the study is that there's a fairly sizable part of the college access provider community that is not plugged into mm-hmm. um, Virginia College Access Network. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, maybe something that this yeah. study will help Absolutely. to encourage sure. those connections to be made. Yeah. So there's some resources that are out there, but there's also some areas of need where maybe the resources aren't being directed as much as they could be right now. So, Kate, why don't you tell us about what the present need for college access providers is in Region 1? Region 1 is really interesting in that respect <laughs> because... Yeah. Um, you can't say, oh, there's high need or there's low need. And the um, the first part of the study that Amy was talking about, you know, using the percentages of post-secondary enrollment and the um, s- indicators for um, low socioeconomic status, if, if you look at these um, really nice charts that we put together that are both <laughs> in the Chev report and in the um, Region 1 report, you'll see that about half the half the school divisions in Region 1 are in the quadrant for the highest need, Mm -hmm. meaning they have the highest percentage of low-income students and the lowest percentages of post-secondary enrollment. Mm -hmm. Then on the other hand, some of this in the same school, in the same region, we have school divisions who are in the quadrant for the lowest need, Mm -hmm. meaning they have very high income levels and very low... um, no, yes, high income levels and high <laughs> secondary <laughs> enrollment levels. Yeah. Um, so in that very high need quadrant, we have we have Richmond, we have Petersburg, Hopewell, and Charles City. Mm. Um, and then in the very lowest quadrant, we have um, like Hanover and Chesterfield and, mm. and Henrico. But I do want to mention that with, within those counties, especially within Chesterfield and Henrico, there's huge variation mm-hmm. between... The schools in their oh, yeah. need. So, for example, in Henrico, you've got the West End, which um, is generally they're fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of them fine. There's always a typically. need for some services. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the East End of Henrico, and it's it's quite a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this it this it wasn't possible to do it with the data that they have in VDOE. Um, so maybe looking at school level data at some point mm-hmm. would help shed light on that. That is fascinating. We find that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was the advisor at Freeman High School for a while and, you know, have someone have a heart attack mm-hmm. and suddenly there are no resources for college or someone with cancer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are all sorts of really difficult situations. Mm-hmm. But it, you may have someone who has a very high income, low income, high income, low income within mm-hmm. your day. But when it, in Highland Springs and Rico and Verina, you're going to have, for the most part, a different situation. Yeah. I will say, interestingly enough, our advisors who are in those schools specifically asked to be there because they love working mm-hmm. in the, and they have wonderful environments. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's no shortage of kids at those schools that want to go to college. Mm-hmm. That's for mm-hmm. sure. And that's yeah. really important for us to remember. Um, so speaking of students, let's talk about what, what student populations are typically the focus for these access providers. So, um, Paula, why don't you get us started with this conversation? What students are we usually focusing on with these access providers? I think Kate actually I kind of mentioned this in the beginning, but really looking at those first-generation students mm-hmm. and low-income students, I think in, in the study really showed that <clears throat> most of our providers really are focusing on low-income students and primarily in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the good things is that we're also going down to the middle school level. 
Got a little bit of work mm-hmm. to do when it comes down to getting down to elementary, but we are moving down to um, the middle school where we see that's really important with that career aspiration piece, where they start connecting careers and ideas of who they want to be with what the what the educational pipeline is for them. And mm-hmm. so. Um, when I speak about access, I always talk about it starts with aspiration, mm-hmm. then preparation. So the lower we get, um, the more impact we'll be able to have. But we are hitting right now high schools and middle schools pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Um, Why is it important to talk to middle school students about college? It might feel like it's really far off for them, but no doubt it's important to talk to them. Why do you think that is? I th- yeah, I, I say get down to elementary and start talking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's because... It is. Far, it does seem like it's far away, and for most, even even our teens, you know, you're living for tomorrow, you're living for the weekend. Um, so anything, seem, I mean, anything we're talking a couple of years away or four years or five years away seems far. Mm-hmm. And so, but they always, you've been getting the question, most students since elementary school, what do you want to be? And so it's kind of a natural transition to how do you get there? And mm-hmm. so we need to start that conversation early because now you know you need to start your transcripts might not. Um, don't go only go with high school, but you need your preparation beforehand. So mm-hmm. you need to get into algebra in eighth grade. There are things you need to do in middle school to help you prepare and be more successful once you get to high school. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. why we need to start talking early. I want to just add to that. I think that um, particularly when it comes to first-generation students or students who are in families who've immigrated to the United States who mm-hmm. may not be familiar with the idea of college, mm-hmm. it. It takes a while for a student and a family to just get used to the idea of college and to really understand why, you know, this um, this endeavor that seems very expensive, why it makes sense to make that investment, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about the longer-term life trajectory mm-hmm. of the student. And so just... the. People need time to get used to that idea, you know, to become convinced that mm-hmm. college is important. Um, and then there's the financial aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just takes time to save up mm-hmm. for college. And it takes time to find the resources that can help support the financial aspect as well, mm-hmm. you know, just in, in terms of financial aid and so on. And many times with the groups you're speaking of, that people are working Young people have full-time jobs or, mm-hmm. or working hours and hours. And when you ask, what do you do with that money, they're actually helping to pay the groceries and the yeah. rent and the fuel mm-hmm. bills. And so one of the things that the college access providers can help with is explaining that to the school they may attend mm-hmm. to say, you know, maybe it looks like they have more money, but let's look at the budget for the family. Yeah. That's really, that's, mm-hmm. I can think of, you know, lots of personal examples where that made a big difference with a student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once those students make it to a lot of my research is with first-generation college students, and a lot of them, like you're talking about, they have to work part-time or full-time when they're in college. A lot of them did it while they were in high school, too. Um, but they also have to do other cost-saving measures like living at home and commuting. Yes. So it might mm-hmm. be that they're less likely to be able to have that experience where they're living in a dorm and getting mm-hmm. that full college experience, for example, they might have to go to school part-time. They're more likely than their continuing generation peers to have to do that. So there's all those um, cost elements that are associated with it. Another thing that's bubbled out of our research that I think is important, and the, the financial talk I think is really accurate, and I think that that's a real barrier that kids perceive um, as something that could get in their way. From the research that we've done with first-generation students, there's a lot of other barriers that are potentially there, too, that they have to consider. So a girl that I was interviewing for a study one time who was considering participating, before she even considered participating, she asked me, what happens to my mom if I go to college? Mm -hmm. 
right? Yeah. And so that's not a financial barrier. Right. That's my mom needs me. I would be the only person to have gone. That I mean, that's I'm abandoning my family to go to college. Mm-hmm. It's a very different kind of barrier, and so mm-hmm. there's also some cultural elements that we have to consider when we're working with these kids. But financial is certainly one of them too. We also found, I remember in the literature review, we found a research that suggests that there's a big difference between rural and urban um, communities in their um, in their, I guess, their likelihood to leave their community, like how mm-hmm. comfortable they were with leaving home and going a certain distance away. And with rural students, they tended to not want to go too far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how much research there was on this, but I thought it was a really interesting finding that I hadn't considered. Yeah, that's right. And it can also be related to just the, the proportion of people with a college education mm-hmm. within the community. You know, if there aren't people who've who've been away to college within your community, mm-hmm. you know, you sort of don't have role models mm-hmm. to suggest that that this is possible or that it's desirable. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that it's a norm in the community. Or that you'll still belong when you come exactly. back. Exactly. Sure. Well, right, and presently there's a lot of information in the press about maybe a college education isn't that valuable. Mm. And I think it gets um, so edited the information that that's all someone hears instead of hearing it might be your major or it might be you know what is your expectation for your income or you know there's the amount of debt that students assume in making particular choices there's a different choice available it's really good especially when we happen to be sitting here at vcu (laughs) which is does an incredible job with financial aid Mm -hmm. um for students also, it's with that broader definition of what college is. When people say college, yes. some people automatically think we're talking about the four-year institution, but there's yeah. so many other things. And when we say college, we're really talking about two-year, four-year uh, training programs. Mm-hmm. I mean, all those different things. So we're really talking about anything after high school, life after high school. And so sometimes you hear college, and I think that's just a four-year. Well, there are a lot of other options, and that's what's really important, I think, for our post-sec, for our access mm-hmm. providers to show all the options that people mm-hmm. have. Yeah. And um, I don't want to get lost in the conversation about the, the early awareness that there's, it's never too late. So if you're a junior and you decide you, need to, you want to go, if you're a senior and you decide you want to go, you have options. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, there may be, you might have to start off um, just going part-time for whatever reason or doing a, a, doing a community college so you figure out what exactly you want to do or go to community college and realize you want to get a license or a certificate that didn't require you to go to a four-year. So I mean, there are a lot of options. So no matter what you want to do, there's an option for you, particularly mm-hmm. in Virginia. We've got a really strong higher education system, um, and it's never too late to make the decision to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Everybody can go. So if you're listening to this and you're wondering, is college for me? Yep, it definitely yep. is. I hate to move on, um, <laughs> but it is important for us to remember what kind of students are being impacted by the college access providers um, in the school and why we're thinking about this because it's really about them. Um, so, Kate, one of, the, one of the things that we're considering here are what kind of opportunities exist for increasing college access for students in Region 1. So can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, and, and Amy, chime in, because I, I, a lot of this comes from the study recommendations um, that, that uh, came out for Region 1 and for the state as a whole. Um, and the one that Paula mentioned, too, targeting students at a younger age was, the, was a big one. And, and also really reaching out to families so making sure that it goes beyond just the individual, but that it's something that's um, that's also targeted towards families and communities. Mm-hmm. Um, engaging post-secondary institutions and the communities around them to really help with that awareness and outreach effort um, to in order to impact just attitudes about being college-going. You know, mm-hmm. just that question, are you college-going? And yes, there's more there's more to it than you may have seen and known, and you can fit into it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So changing those attitudes um, and then making sure there's good awareness of the benefits of it, that's that's huge. Because um, when they get messages, like you mentioned, Betty, then that kind of whitewashes all the good things that can come out of it. Um, I mean, those are the big ones I wanted to point out because I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to steal all your thunder. This point is thunder to go around. Yeah, Amy, hop in. Well, I would just. I, I would say I completely agree with the idea that you know uh, that just how critical it is to reach students at a young age and to make sure that um, that we're encouraging kids to think about you know what they what they want to be when they grow up and how they're going to get there is a really essential part of that. And I think that that can be a hook for talking to kids about a a college education at a very early age because Mm -hmm. all kids are thinking about what they want to be when they grow up, Mm -hmm. you know, and have have ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us haven't decided yet. (laughs) The other thing that Kate mentioned about the the community ties uh, that can support college access for students within a particular locality, I think that's really crucial. And I think that um, there's, well, there's some research that shows that a kind of dense network of support is the most effective. And so that means access providers working with um, schools, working with local colleges and universities, working with business leaders, working with community organizations, um, everybody kind of thinking about how they can support students and how they can work collaboratively with the other organizations to support students. I think that that's something that can develop a lot. Sure. Um, and can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, while you're on a roll, Amy, why don't you why don't you give us some idea about what our next steps are for this research? Well, uh, I think that one thing that I'm really interested in is um, a better understanding of what the obstacles are to um, to increasing awareness about college opportunities among young kids. Mm-hmm. That's particularly interesting because it was something that came up in the earlier study as well. And I think that this, the current study shows that there's been progress made in terms of the number, the percentage of organizations that are reaching out to younger kids, but clearly there's a, still a lot more to be done. Um, what we found is that roughly 85 to 90 percent of the college access providers that participated in our survey worked with students in 11th and 12th grade. Mm-hmm. 20% or fewer worked with students in fifth grade or below. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's mm-hmm. a big difference. And, um, you know, and the questions are, is it, um, is it the difficulty of getting kids and families when the kids are that age to understand why they should start thinking about college? Is it a problem of access, that access providers just don't have the, you know, kind of networks, the contacts within elementary schools? Um, Or are are there other obstacles? Um, So I think that's an area that we need a much better understanding of, and it would be great if this study could serve as kind of a jumping-off point for, um, for investigating that kind of thing. Yeah. The interesting thing about elementary schools, the parental involvement is so much higher than high schools. Yeah. So maybe that's a great opportunity to touch the parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so some of the students that we um, interviewed here 
that are first generation college students, they talk about how I always wanted to go to college. So it's clear that somebody mm-hmm. when they were really young really kind of ingrained that in them that it was socialized. A lot of times it was by their parents. The parents were saying that you're going no matter what. So getting them involved. Start them young is important for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, for everybody, we've got this this information that's out there on college access resources. How would you like to see this research used? Who could benefit from this? I can tell you one. <laughs> I'm really excited about this research because sometimes we get questions about going to a particular school mm-hmm. or submitting a grant for a particular opportunity, and I think it's going to be fabulous to have this basis for that to help with that decision, especially noticing the middle and the elementary school gap as opposed to a school that may have several access providers already. Instead of doing that, we should be going lower in mm-hmm. the school we're already in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's really going to help help our board of directors make, I think, good decisions about where we expand. I And I work in the field of um, adult education, and I can really see its usefulness um, in a couple ways, one being used by the higher uh, institutes of higher education themselves, mm-hmm. um, especially community colleges, when they're trying to um, recruit and get students from populations that do not normally go mm-hmm. to college. So I think access to this kind of information, and there hasn't, as much as I can find out, there hasn't been this kind of survey done of services provided to adults that aren't, you know, services not tied to K-12. So I think um, this could serve as a really great model for a study to see what's happening with adults and ways to improve that and as to, to, to build out from that, not just to target those adults themselves, but to start to instill this kind of family attitude to, um, toward college awareness and college going. One hope that I have is that the report will be used by the college access providers themselves to build the, the college access community up. Yes. As Betsy mm-hmm. was saying, you know, there's there's VCAN, which is a wonderful organization. But a lot of what we found is that a lot of the groups, the access providers that um, that are small and that aren't necessarily entirely focused on college access, they didn't, some of them didn't even know about VCAN. Mm. Yeah. And many of them said that they just... Some of them have no no contact, no interaction with other college access providers, and so they're really kind of operating in a vacuum. Uh, so I think there's a great opportunity for college access providers to find out about each other and see mm-hmm. what other folks are doing and both learn from them and share their own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also opportunities, I think, for resource sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that GRASP works in partnership with other organizations yes. that don't have as strong uh, knowledge and background about the financial aid aspect mm-hmm. of the college application process. And so they are in a position to support those other organizations with that. Um, I think there's a similar opportunity for groups that focus on SAT test preparation, mm-hmm. which again, you know, requires more sort of specialized, almost mm-hmm. technical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, uh, and I know that there is at least one organization that does that in Region 1. So that's an opportunity for them to partner with other organizations and, and you know, um, lend their expertise. Sure. I heard the word opportunity there a lot. Yeah. Paula, what do you think? Somebody from the state. At at the state level, I'd love to see this, you know, maybe influence some policy Mm -hmm. um, as well as funding, helping direct funding, because we have identified areas of greatest need. Also, I think it's what's interesting. We often 
uh, focus on like what we call the high risk quadrant in the study, but also looking at those other areas where there is they're doing well, mm-hmm. and what you know trying to figure out what they are doing in those areas that we could replicate. Um, we did a, when we did the study in two thousand nine. <clears throat> we ended up doing a follow up because we did recognize that there were some areas that were doing really well, even though they may have some high risk factors. And um, what we found was making a difference was partnership. And that's just what you were speaking of, Amy. Um, partnerships were making the difference, even though they may have been may have been under resourced. They were collaborating and really maximizing on all the resources in the community to really make huge differences for their students. So this idea of collaborating more within the access community as well as I would love to see more of our access providers working really closely with our institutions. So they're, you know, our our access providers are working with the students that our institutions want. They, you know, there's there's ways they can share resources and opportunities with students, making them more aware of all the great resources that can be found at our institutions, um, the programs that they're currently offering. The study does touch on some of the institution-based programs. So it would be great to see how they can collaborate with some of our community-based as well as our in-school programming and students in schools and counselors. Again, shout out to our counselors and parents. <laughs> <laughs> the um, and then, as, as Betsy was saying, really helping our access community. We've seen it grow and become more professional since 2009, but I think, again, the more information, the more research we're able to do, we're able to, to um, validate their work as well as help direct some of their services. As you were saying, maybe now we realize, actually, we do need to move down to middle school mm-hmm. and high school. We've kind of started not to over-concentrate, there's never too much, but we've realized maybe we do need to start moving some of our support services further down and really um, cover the entire field versus kind of being concentrated in one area to better serve all our students. Sure. So college is for everyone, folks. For everyone. Let's let's get more people there. So we're going to have to leave that there for now, but if you're interested in this topic, you can keep up to date on the progress of this Merck study by visiting our website at merck.soe.vcu.edu. That's M-E-R-C dot soe dot vcu dot edu and clicking on virginia college access resource study under current projects there you will find information about this study as well as a research brief outlining the current landscape of access providers in region one you can also check out our other ongoing projects on our site as well as access to uh, other episodes of this podcast if you enjoyed what you heard today we hope you did Um, We hope that you will share this episode with anyone you believe could benefit from joining our conversation. We're eager to bring them to the table with us. You can access Abstract on the Merck website as well as on SoundCloud and iTunes. We hope you'll subscribe and leave some feedback while you're there. Um, Our next episode will feature a discussion about embedded interventions in high-poverty school settings, which I'm super excited about. It's a big need around here. We hope you'll join us for that. Our thanks, as always, to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck, to Jesse Seneschal for his fearless direction, to Kyle Yoga Muffin Rudd for sound editing and for our super cool theme music, to the wonderful and talented Tracy Naff for our logo design, and to all of our partnering school divisions, Chesterfield, Colonial Heights, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Powhatan, and Richmond. Our thanks to Paula and the State Council of Higher Education of Virginia for commissioning this study, to Amy, Kate, and Jesse for their hard work on the research, and to Betsy for the important work she does at GRASP for students in the Commonwealth. And, of course, thanks to all the teachers and educators out there and to you at home for joining our conversation today. We hope that we will continue to find ways to increase access to college for all of our students who want to go. Uh, My name is David Knapp, and this has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues in education. Let's talk again soon.